pray, and we'll look at Esther chapter 1. So, Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. Um, I thank you for Esther, this, this great book, Lord. I, I pray that um, as we go through this over the next few weeks, that you would um, help us, Lord, to see the story in, in, in color, that it would come alive, that we would feel and sense and see what happened. And, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us through your word. Lord, we're all in a, a variety of places in our lives, and so we ask that you would meet each one. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it's living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And so we pray, Lord, that you would minister to us through your word. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. thought about asking for volunteers to, to, uh, to, to, to read a few of the names in this passage. There's some difficult ones. But I'm going to teach you a little trick. If you ever are asked to read anything in the Bible and you find like a name of a place or a name of a person... The secret is just to read it with authority. Nobody, no, like nobody can challenge you. Just say it and say, wow, they're good. Like that's, so I'm going to try to do that. I have no clue how to say these names, so if I, don't, don't let me fool you. Okay, Esther chapter 1, verse 1. Now it took place in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, as King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which was at the citadel in Susa, in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his princes and attendants, the army officers of Persia and Media, the nobles, the princes of his provinces being in his presence. And he displayed the riches of his glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days, a hundred and eighty days. When these days were completed, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days for all the people who were present at the citadel in Susa, from the greatest to the least, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were hangings of fine white and violet linen held by cords of fine purple linen on silver rings and marble columns, and couches of gold and silver on mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels of various kinds, and the royal wine was plentiful according to the king's bounty. The drinking was done, and done according to the law. There was no compulsion, for so the king had given orders to each official of his household that he should do according to the desires of each person. Queen Vashti, also gave a banquet for the women in the palace, in the palace which belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bizda, Harbona, Bigtha, Aga, Abtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty. To the people and princes, for she was beautiful. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. The king became very angry, and his wrath burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for it was the custom of the king to speak before all who knew the law and justice and were close to him, Karshina, Sethar, Admatha, Tarnish, Tarshish, Mers, Marsina, and Memucan, the seven princes of Persia and Media who had access to the king's presence and sat in the first place in the kingdom. 
According to the law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti because she did not obey the command of King Asherus, delivered by the eunuchs? In the presence of the king and princes, Memucan said, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also all the princes and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Asherus. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands by saying, Queen Asherus commanded the Queen Vashti to be brought into his presence, but she did not come. This day, the ladies of Persian media who have heard of the queen's conduct will speak in the same way to all the king's princes, and there will be plenty of contempt and anger. If it pleases the king, let a royal edict be issued by him, and let it be written in the laws of Persian media so that it cannot be repealed that Vashti may no longer come into the presence of King Asherus and let the king give her royal position to another who is more worthy than she. When the king's edict, which he will make, is heard throughout all his kingdom, great as he is, then all women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. This word pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. So he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province according to its script and to every people according to their language, and every man should be the master of his own house and the one who speaks in the language of his own people. And Father, we thank you for the story. We ask that you would guide us now. Help us, Lord. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. I don't know if you guys noticed something, or really, did you, did you notice what was missing from this first chapter? There's no mention of God, no mention of Judaism, no mention of anything. The, the, don't even think that when it said that when all the drinking was done according to the law, don't think that that was Jewish law. This was the law of the Persians. Nowhere in the book of Esther is God mentioned at all. Nowhere. Um, the, the only remote Things that we like, there's twice when the story's starting to peak and and things are about to come to a head. Esther's advised by her uncle to fast. No mention of prayer, but just to fast. And at the very end, there's a command to fast. So this this book really is absent of of anything mentioned about God. And. It can be a, a sort of a, da- a dangerous place to be for me as a pastor, for us as readers. I know that for however long it takes us to get through this story, anytime I mention God, that's me kind of adding to the story. And so in these places, it can become very sort of, how do we navigate? There's, there's something that comes up in Bible studies um, that that sort of makes pastors cringe at times, and others that and it, it's the, the the Bible study when the question the question is asked is, what do you think that this means? Now the problem with that question is I have all sort of thoughts, and I'm going to tell you guys what I think a lot of this means. And Anna's like worried about the direction I'm going to go in a lot of these things. She's like, oh dear, she's like I'm really concerned. Like I'm like well you could go a lot of different directions. And she's like, I know. And there's a lot about marriage in here, so I'm really, really concerned. And I'm like, but they're like jokes just like jumping from this text. <laughs> but I'll save that for later. 
And so the question isn't so much what do I think about the text or any story of the Bible. The question needs to be asked, what does God think about this? Why did God give this? Because that's ultimately what matters. What we think doesn't really matter. We want to come to understand what God thinks about this. Now, now that's a, that's a, that's a tough question in this book. Because God doesn't speak. He doesn't say what he intends. It's He speaks from silence powerfully. Often when we go through the scriptures, when we start getting lost in the details, what we have to do is to sort of step back and look at the bigger picture. You know, many of us try to read through the Bible in a year. You get to Leviticus. We make all the jokes about you shall eat out of a glass that's got no cracks in it and it should be washed with, you know, vinegar or like I'm making stuff up because we all fall. But there's like very detailed instructions and you go, what does this have to do? Like, I don't like, how does this fit? Well, if you take a couple steps back to look at the whole picture, it would be helpful. And there's a verse, uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, who's a Jewish man, a, a, a rabbi in his own right, very gifted, wrote most of the New Testament as he writes to the believers who are in Rome. In Romans chapter 15, verse 4, I'm not going to turn there, but I'm going to read what he writes. He says, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And so he speaks of the scriptures, the Old Testament, Genesis to Revelation really are the scriptures. And he says, that as we look back upon the Old Testament, we know that ultimately it was given to us for hope. So I think with Paul's instruction, as I come to Esther, I ask the question, okay, this was given for hope, but how does, this, how does hope bubble out of this story? From Genesis to Revelation, there's this theme of redemption that goes throughout the pages. And so the big picture of Esther, we kind of have to step back and remember back to Genesis, the early pages when humanity sinned, when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit in rebellion against God. Sin entered into humanity's DNA. It changed us. We're not sinners because we sin. We're sin we're, we're, we sin because we're sinners. You're born with this DNA that's corrupt. And in Genesis 3.15, there's this first picture of hope that a Messiah would come. God curses man and woman and then the serpent. And the serpent, Satan, he says, you'll bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. And you see this picture of the Messiah developing through the pages of the Old Testament. Later in Genesis chapter 12 and 15, you see the Abrahamic covenant that the Messiah will come through his son. We see Isaac, who all of the promises held on to. Then we see David. And so in the midst of the story, before I go ahead, I'm going to, let's get to the text. So this story starts out in verse 1. Now it took place in the days of Asherus. This also could be Xerxes. There's two names. So your Bible could read Xerxes or Asherus. Same guy. The Asherus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces in those days as King Asherus sat on his royal throne, which was at the citadel in Susa. In human history, 
if you go to the history book and you do a study of empires that have come and fallen, we're looking at one of the first like great empires. Persia was this huge, huge empire. Isaiah prophesied that the Jews would be taken into captivity. Uh, 586 BC, and I'm blanking on the other, and five, a few, like 13 years later. Um, never mind. My brain's like, too many files opened up. One kingdom comes, takes the northern kingdom into captivity. Then the second empire comes, takes the southern kingdom of Israel. Israel is scattered. And so this story takes place during the scattering. Israel had not existed and didn't exist for thousands of years. It wasn't until modern history when Israel was declared a state again. We live in a time when we know Israel is a state. But for thousands of years, the people of God who great promises about the land They were decimated. They were in exile. And so this story takes place under this first great kingdom of Persia that dominated basically what the text says. If we look at this map behind me, Susa is where it's located. Susa is like, that's like Kuwait, Iraq. Iran is over here a little bit. This is like the capital of the world. All of the locations listed from Ethiopia down south to India. What this, the first two verses are saying in all, The whole world, this was the known world during this time. This man, Asherus, sat on his royal throne in Susa. He was the king of the world. He owned everything. He'd he'd conquered the world from Persia. The Greeks would then raise up. The The Greeks would eventually conquer the Persians. Alexander the Great would conquer the world. He would force Greek the Greek language on the whole known world, you had to speak it. And we see in God's sovereignty that it was beautiful how this happened. So, so everybody's speaking Greek. Then the Greeks are conquered by the Romans. Then the Romans were dominant. They created their roads. And in the midst of this transition, the Messiah came. And as the Messiah came, there was no greater time in hu- human history for the message of the gospel to go out with the roads that the Romans and the peace that the Romans had created, the, the, the Koine Greek, the language of all humanity, it spread like wildfire. And when you look at history, you, you couldn't set it up any better. But in this first chapter, I hope you notice the days of Asherus, the Asherus who reigned from Ethiopia, his royal thrones, his palaces, his place, his, him, all about this guy. He was great, mighty, and powerful. I didn't actually count or do, but I read a couple places. God is mentioned zero times in this book. King Asherus is mentioned something like 193 times. He is a mighty, powerful king. And as I look at this story and I look at his might and I see how it's going to develop, Proverbs 21.1 keeps coming to mind because in God's silence, I think he wants us to see something. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. When you see water flowing in a river, you can manipulate the water wherever you want it to go. It's just a matter of, of making channels. We do this. This is where our water comes from. If you guys have noticed, we don't have much water here in California. 
our water comes from the Colorado River because we've built these ducts and these actual that, that basically manipulate the water to come here. And God, throughout his word, says that kings of great nations are nothing but water in his hand, that he can manipulate and control where they go. And this is a, this is a point that I hope that we get, especially as American Christians, um, a, a delicate point, but one that I think that we, we need to hear is we Christians, as we look at our nation that's, that's strayed dramatically from where our, our, our founding fathers are, we have a propensity to kind of freak out. I, I want to say two things. First, I, I'm totally cool with like, get involved in politics, vote, do whatever. We as Christians are to submit to the authorities. We are so blessed that we live in a nation that says the citizens vote, they dictate, they determine. So in our submitting to our authorities, go vote, go to church, do all of that. That's great. But I hate to break it to you. Second Chronicles 721, if my people hear my voice to humble themselves and pray, that's not talking about America. There's nothing in about America in the Bible. There's nothing in the scriptures that a nation is going to, de- de- to come and develop that's going to dominate Christianity and it's going to fix everything because there's a nation that becomes a super-duper Christian power that takes over everything. The Bible says the very opposite, that the nations are going to go astray. And one day, our Messiah is going to return with an iron fist, and then things will change, but it's only him. And so one thing that we need to see in this story is that there's hope. This king was far greater than our president far greater than any administration. And we need to understand that what's going on in the the halls of the White House today, don't think that God's not working his sovereign plan somehow. And I'm not trying to convince you that we'll understand or agree with how this plan is unfolding. But I can tell you from Scripture that he says that the king's heart is but like waters in his hand and he he can control it how he wants. And the irony in this story, it's only going to thicken as we look at this. So here's this guy, the first two verses. I hope you could see, I hope I've made it clear that Xerxes or Asherus is a mighty, mighty, mighty powerful man. There is nothing he can't do. There is nothing he can't attain. He can do what, he literally is the king of the world. The first two, few verses, the first few words, now it took place in the days of Asherah. If we were to write this, in the Hebrew, it literally is, once upon a time, there was this great king who was the king of the world. He had the world at his fingertips and everything's going to fall apart on him. And this nobody orphaned Jew who's trying to hide who she is, she's going to raise to the second place in authority. And I tell you that sometimes silence is way louder and way more powerful than words. Like on the back of the bulletins, there's a great quote, kind of like, you don't see God, but God's, he's just, you can't read the story and see God working. And in verse 3, we read, in the third year of his reign, kind of put third year on your back burner, Because at the end of today, today's message, I want to kind of show you the chronology of the story of Esther, how it unfolds. So just the third year of his reign, sort of keep that in the back of your mind. It's about 483 B.C. 
he gave a banquet for all his princes and attendants and army officers and Persian media nobles, princes of his provinces being in the, his presence. And he displayed the riches of his royalty and his royal glory and splendor of his great, his great majesty for many days. Six months! Have you guys ever been to a six-month party? I get bored after like an hour and a half. I'm like, can we go yet? Are we like, uh, I'm like so thankful for like smartphones because I can like totally like escape to a whole other world. Six months. I look at this and I think, oh, how terrible. Then other of us are like, that just sounds wonderful. Like, and this is an extravagant party. Six months. At the end of the six months, the, the doors are sort of going to be open. Like this is where we would be invited in. And the white trash and the rednecks and all of us, Valley Center, we'd be like, all right, come on in, guys. <laughs> you can tack on a week-long party at the end of the six months. Look what it says. This is his Bible. This is what it says. Verse 5, when these days were completed, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days for all the people who were present at the citadel in Susa, from the greatest to us, I mean the least, <laughs> in the courts of the garden of the palace. So this is like, huge party. I really don't know. Like, the closest I've come to this is in my mind. I Like, I go to places. The greatest party I ever went to, that was before I was a Christian. I was in Memphis, Tennessee, and I took the tour of Graceland. Graceland. Elvis. Have you guys been to El- El- Graceland? It is awesome. I paid extra for the, the tour of his jets. His jets? I'm like walking the hall. I'm like, oh man, I just wish. Like God made some horrible mistake in my timing of my birth. I was supposed to be with the king. Like I could just see myself in his jet parting it up. Then there's like the smaller jet. And then you go into the house. Like there's like, it's wonderful. I mean, it was like, I see these places. I think, why? Why? How did I miss the boat on this one? And then the other tour, there's, there's Hearst Castle, and like up in San Simeon, like San Luis, you guys been to there? Hearst Castle. You got to take the bus up to the mansion. It's so far, there's so much land up there. And I'm walking the halls going, I could totally do this. Like, I could have been him. I should have been him. Like, then he starts struggling with all of this, like, like envy, and like, why did God drop the ball on me like this? This I'm like taking the tour going, I wonder how much jail time I'd get for like just jumping in the pool right now. I want to do some laps. I want to eat some grapes on the pool deck. I want to like, and then, oh, it's too cold out here. Well, I'll go to the pool on the inside where there's gold on the floor. I don't know what your mind does on these tours, but like they're all of these, Lake Tahoe, there's the, like we do the tour. And it's, this is why that show Downton Abbey is so popular. Because we look at that, I made fun of it that Anna was down for six weeks and I was like, had nothing to do. I'm like, maybe I'll start from the very beginning. And so there I am like watching the kids for six weeks. Anna's like bedroom. I'm cooking all the meals. I'm watching the kids try not to let them kill themselves. And then I put them to bed. I'm like, I got some time on my hands. Maybe I'll go back to the beginning of Dot and Abby and watch the whole show. I'm like three or four episodes into it going, I could sure go for some staff some parties, do the dishes. And I think this is why we like, I'm going, like, this would be awesome. And Anna's like, you identify with the rich people calling the shots? I'm like, 
yeah, what do you think about? She's like, I think about all the drama in the kitchen. And... But this is the kind of party that was happening. From verses 5 through 6, somebody who's an interior designer who is not me sort of inserts the glory. So in verse 5, we see that the people are invited in. In verse 7, we see, I'm sorry, verse 6, we see there were hangings of white and violet linen. They have a purple linen. It came from like, like something out of the ocean that was, like this meant wealth. If you had purple anything, it was extreme wealth. White and violet linen held by cords of fine purple linen on silver rings, like real silver, not just fake silver. This is silver. On mosaic pavements of porphyry, whatever that is, marble, mother of pearl, precious stones. Did I not get to the gold couches or did I skim right over it? There are gold couches. I skipped right over the, the marble columns and couches of gold. This is like plush. And then in verse 7, drinks were served on golden vessels of various kinds, and royal wines was plentiful according to the king's bounty, and drinking was done according to law. There was no compulsion, for the king had given orders for each official of his household that he should do according to the desires of his each person. You guys ever been to like an open bar at a wedding? Like I like how this kind of tones it down like, Nobody was forced to do anything that they were like not wanting to do. Like this is like that is each conscience. Well, I've been to some parties that only like were one night. And if you like like there's like the open bar where it's like beer and wine are free, but if you're talking like open bar where like everything's free. I know people, or maybe I run in some bad circles. I don't like my I don't see people going, oh, well, I'll just have half a beer. I'm good. It's... People are stupid. <laughs> like, people get stupid when alcohol's involved. And then you open the whole bar? <laughs> Kings are taxing me. I'm going to get some of my taxes back. Seven days. Open up a few more bottles of wine, please. To keep it flowing. This is a huge stupid drinking part. They are getting out of control. And I think this is where it means nothing. We see in verse 9 that Queen Vashti is having her own party with the women, which means at this party, it's just men. And I'm so thankful that women are sort of like embedded into our culture. Because if you take women out, the stupidity level that guys can attain... In the SEAL teams, there's no women. I've seen vast, vast stupidity. And so whatever you imagine on the scale of this party and drunkenness and stupor, take out the women. There's no wives holding the husbands back. There's no guys trying to impress the ladies. It's just like, I imagine them jumping off the balcony into the pool, doing all sorts of stupid, hey guys, check this out. Stupid, stupid, great, huge party. And by the seventh day, the king is just as drunk as all of the rest of them. The Bible words it kind of nicely. But on the seventh day, verse 10, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, that means he was stupid drunk. He was out of control. 
he comes up with a great idea. He commanded these seven guys, so I'm going to skip over. I already read their names. These are eunuchs. Eunuchs means that they were castrated. If you were a man and you wanted to get up to that level, you had to be castrated. I need to do more research. There's a lot of spots during today where I'm going to like start. I, I hear Anna talking to my content saying, don't go there. Don't go there. And so I'm like having this like, I'm having this internal battle with my wife. And so I have to kind of push through that battle in order to like have this conversation. So like we live in Valley Center. Like there are people in the church who have goats. I've learned that when you have goats, pretty much the, the lady goats, they pretty much get off scot-free. They're good to go. Like, that's okay. <laughs> but the boys, they get eaten. They get castrated. They get, like, all but one. And I don't know if it's because of, like, cross-pollinization or, like, like I don't know if they act stupid if there's too many. Un- but this is, like, worldwide. When I went to Mongolia, I was so thankful that I got deathly ill because where we were supposed to go was the countryside. And one of the things in the countryside during the springtime is they castrate all the animals. But they just don't throw those bad boys away. They boil them in a big pot. And if you're a guest, you have to eat them. And so I got out of that by being really sick, which I was super thankful. Okay, back on track here. So the king, if you're a trusted person in his thing, you're castrated. You're no threat to getting any girls pregnant. You're no threat to like having the desire to like overthrow him. And in the midst of this party, as he's super drunk, he gets these seven guys who've all been castrated, and he asks them to go bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown to display, in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful. Now, don't have it in your mind that he was like, hey, boys, I'd like to see my wife. I miss her. It's been six months and seven days. Can you go tell her I miss her a lot and have her come here? What, what you need to have in your mind is drunk, sloppy guy. Vasty! I want Vasty! Hey, boys! Go get my wife! I want to show her off to the boys! In her crown. I'm a, I wrestled with this story last service, but I broke through my conscience, and so I'm just, this service is a lot easier. <laughs> this wasn't in my notes. It just came to me, you know, and... Uh, when I, when I was going through SEAL training, we were getting really close to the end. We were getting really arrogant. We'd like, there was nothing the instructors could do to hurt us. We knew we were graduating in weeks. We found ourselves out at San Clemente Island, all men. Things get more stupid. And no alcohol was even involved for us. The instructors, that might have been different. But for us, there was nothing. And one of the instructors came to us and said, guys... You have five minutes, you're having a weapons and H-gear inspection. And we're like, weapons and H-gear inspection. So the weapon that we shoot with, and then H-gear is like this harness where you carry your bullets and supplies. Normally they would say uniform weapons and H-gear inspection, that they want to inspect your uniform, your boots polish, your weapons, your H-gear, all of that. I don't know, I'm pretty sure it was a mistake on the instructor's part, but he just said weapons and H-gear. So what if, I don't know who, it wasn't my idea. It wasn't. It really wasn't. <laughs> so he said, they just said weapons in H-gear. I think we need to line up in formation just in our weapons in H-gear. 
So there we were in all of our glory with our weapons and H gear, just all of us naked. And apparently, which they didn't tell us, this little inspection was happening because some like high-ranking officials <laughs> showed up. To, to... And so then I see like the admiral, like warrant officers, command master chiefs, and it was like we were kind of stuck. And they came and they tried to like chew us out, but they were all giggling. And it turned into like being the worst night of my life, the 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 pain we suffered. But this is kind of what he's saying. It's humorous. If you read the, the Jewish commentators, the minority tried to like give the king a little bit of respect and say, oh, he just meant like without her veil. But most of them are like, no, what he's saying here, he's showing off to all the boys, my wife is so beautiful. I'm the king of the world. I can do whatever I want. She's going to come and have a little strip show for you guys. All she's going to have is the crown because I own her. That's my little, like, and she's going to come parade her stuff for all the drunken people. And um, I'm going to see where am I on my notes here. Yeah, this is where I, (laughs) there's a whole lot of detours I can take in this little, This is a great example of a horrible husband. I can assure you that this is not the kind of marriage that God has designed between husband and wife. Nobody's claiming that that they are believers, followers of God. Everything indicates to the total opposite. This is just total like Total, complete, pagan. The citadel gone wild situation. But from this of bad examples, I think we as Christians go, well, what went wrong here? Because what's going on here, if you watch like, I don't watch it, but like, what is it? Like the Inquirer magazine, like all of like these shows that follow like the drama of the the rich and famous in our culture. They're kind of a mess in their relationships. True? Like, is, I don't think I'm making like a huge leap. And in some ways, the only thing that keeps us from having relationships that are this like out of the box like crazy is because we don't have the financial like wherewithal or credit line to really pull this off. But our hearts are just as bad. When I look at this story, it's like where in the world to begin? I have like a, I have like a, a just a paragraph of like a bunch of different ways I could go. So what stands out to me, what's bad about this, number one, is God created man and woman to come together as one, husband and wife. When I look at the pages of the scriptures and I see what does God want in this relationship, when he says the two become one, yes, there is the, the sort of the, the sex, there's very clearly the sexual aspect to the two becoming one. But I believe it's so much more than that. It is 
the, the unity of your relationship. And God's desire is that in our marriages, or if you're not married and you desire to be married, that your relationship with your spouse is so, ex- not, I don't want to say exclusive, but the, the bond and, and the relationship there is that there is no greater intimacy or relationship with any other person, not your parents, not your siblings, not your coworkers, that your marriage relationship from the Bible should be extremely guarded and developed and nurtured and, and brought into maturity. And here we see a guy, there's a couple points. The first one I'll make is he goes six months, seven days, totally separated from his wife. That's not good. The, the two should become one means you're cultivating your relationship, your friendship. I'll never forget one of my Bible um, uh, professors who taught me, it was my first Bible college class, funny old guy from Brazil. Like, well, he was a, he's American, but he spent his whole life in Brazil as a missionary. I just saw him last January. Whenever I see him, I'm like, hey, Dr. Byrne, how are you doing? My plumbing still works. Meaning he can go to the bathroom. He's like, that's all you can ask for at 90. He's like, my wife and I are as close as ever. He's like, it's not about sex. It's about companionship. And this is the kind of stuff he, it just made this huge impression on me because our culture doesn't say that about marriage. Okay, moving on. Back to the text. I'm surprised when I read through this when I see verse 12, but Queen Vashti refuses to come to the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. I was expecting all ladies to say, amen. You go, girl. Like, why don't you guys... Question is like, oh, is she wrong? Well, even backing up, think about these eunuchs. The queen had all sorts of power. Like she was married for many, many years to the king. Like talking to, like she, I think Ben and I were talking this morning. I think she had like nine of his children. Like this isn't like she's just some lady on the. She had all sorts of power. Can you imagine these seven eunuchs like walking to her saying, "I think you should say to her. I think you should talk to her. I think that um." Uh, then they get there like. Your Royal Highness, Miss Queen, dear lady, the king has requested your presence with just your crown. <laughs> Nothing more. <laughs> We're just the messengers. <laughs> like, don't. And clearly she refuses. And so then the issue of, like, w- within Christianity, the question of, of, of submission. Submission is like a foul word in our culture. Wives, be, submiss- be subject to your husbands. I totally believe that, like, that God has created an order. The, the Bible says that men are to, to lead, to love their wives. Three times he tells us to love as Christ loved the church sacrificially. To the women, it said like once that they submit to their husbands. Then it says uh, that they should respect their husbands. And, and so then the question as I see this, not that either one of them are they is she wrong for refusing this and in circles today i've seen sort of two extremes like first this the idea of submission in our culture is so foul because so many people under the name of christianity have used it 
in a very ungodly way, which is not at all what the Bible has indicated to do. And so I see ladies basically submitting in like terribly abusive situations. And I, there's a side of me that I think if their heart is right and they like God can like honor that, but I don't necessarily think that God calls women to submit to the point where they are being disobedient to the clear instruction that God has given. Now, I think that this case is so rare in our culture. I think the other side of things that I've seen is that you get a godly man loving his family, leading his wife, and a wife because of our culture and feminism and whatever else, that she pushes back and doesn't allow her husband to lead and resist his ability to follow. Now, every man is not perfect. Your husband is not perfect. You can say it, ladies. Amen. The guys can say, we are not. We like Christ is the only perfect person. And so learning to lead, it, it's like this give and take. If you love your, like in the ideal situation, you have a man who loves Jesus, who's walking with Jesus, who's trying to lead his family according to the scriptures. You have a wife who loves Jesus. They're both submitting to Christ. And then she follows his leadership. And it's a beautiful thing. But we're so fallen and our hearts are so wrong and are the influences around us, which kind of gets to the next point. Like she says, no, I don't think that she was wrong because I'm pretty sure that this is clear that God doesn't want her to parade around naked because her husband told her to. I don't think that's the sort of submission that God's talking about. Then they come back and break it to the queen and said, <laughs> she said a bunch of stuff, but all we're going to say is she said she's not coming. <laughs> And look at his reaction. The king became very angry and his wrath burned within him. This guy could control the whole world, could, could dominate other nations. And yet he couldn't control the woman in this house. Do you guys see the humor of that? It's sort of funny. And he's furious. And so the next few verses, in his anger, I don't know that this is the, the same day. I don't know if he's still drunk. I kind of feel like this is kind of like the next morning, the next couple days. The more he thinks about that she publicly shamed him, as foolish as his request was, he's just burning with anger. And so verse 13 and 14 what essentially says here is he has a bunch of attorneys. He contacts these attorneys. He has these attorneys come to him. There's a bunch of hard names. There's one of them that's going to speak, Memucan. And verse 15, he essentially, as he has these, like, his attorney general present, all of the attorneys, the Supreme Court present, he says a question. And in verse 15, he says, according to this law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti? Because she did not obey the command of the king, Asherus, delivered by the eunuchs. So there's two thoughts I have to kind of, this whole story is a huge, drunken, crazy, crazy party. 
And what's about to happen in the midst of this king's drunken rage, he's seeking this counsel. Behind the words on the page, the sovereignty of God is moving in this king's heart in a way that we would say, this is crazy. there's a side to me that can't accept that God would work in a circle like this, yet the Bible over and over and over again shows that God is working. And I think now during the last service, I started thinking that, you know, right now, if you were to go to Pacific Beach, there's a couple like great bars, like for my pre-days there. There are people that are like young kids who are drunk out of their mind right now on the boardwalk drinking up a storm, partying, doing all sorts of stupid stuff. Not nearly as stupid as this, but terrible. I was one of them for many, many years. Often my Sunday morning started with Bloody Marys. And then at the Silver Fox, and then going to the Broken Yoke to get a little breakfast, to get some food in my belly, to be able to carry on the drinking of the next day. I see people laughing. You were there with me. Maybe we party. I don't know. But when I go back to that time, so rebellious against God, to think in his sovereignty that he's working and and I'm a pastor today, guys, and it's hilarious. This is hilarious. I'm teaching you the Bible, and I'm saying 15, 16 years ago, I was partying up in all these bars, and yet in the midst of that, I don't know who was praying for me, If people knew me, they'd say, there's no way there's any hope for Gunner. And yet God in his sovereignty, his big, heavy wheels, grinding away, refining me, moving me to the place over years to where finally I would bow down. And God is moving here. It doesn't seem possible, but all of this is sort of like working out just so this young girl who's been orphaned, can rise to power. And ultimately, through her placement, number two in the kingdom, that the Jewish people would be preserved. Ultimately, that the Messiah, it's overwhelming. Now, on practical terms, I don't speak Spanish that well. I feel like that's a little more stretch. Anybody who I... If you speak Spanish, I've tried to speak Spanish to you. It's just how it rolls. I watch my soccer in Spanish. I'm like trying super hard. I can understand a lot. Like I know all about pelotas and, you know, like good stuff. And so when people are talking to me in Spanish, I like can get it. Like I understand. And I try to talk back and then my tongue like wraps up in a circle, like in a knot, and I just can't get it out. My wife who grew up in Spain is always like telling me of like sayings in Spanish. And there's a saying, and I don't know if it's in Mexican Spanish or just in Spain Spanish, but it's, uh, can you say it for me? Can I do this? <laughs> Tell me who your friends are. So it's like, show me who your friends are, and I'll tell you who you are. And the whole idea of the picture is, a, a lesson I see here, for those of you who aren't married or are about to get married or have been married for a long time, at every wedding I say, love is blind. But marriage is an eye-opener because it gets difficult. And if you're married, who are you surrounding yourself by? This king is a fool. He's an absolute fool. 
he says something so stupid about his wife, he wants to parade her naked in front of all of the men to show off what he's conquered. There's a point in an argument where you cross a line, it happens to me, and you know, oh, dude, I was so wrong. Like, I was wrong. I need to, like, fix this. But normally what you want to do is you just want to push through the fight and win. Well, as I become a Christian, I've learned that I step over this line, and this line is becoming far more convicting. That I'll be in a fight, and I'll go, I am so totally, completely wrong. How did I get here? I need to back up. Oh, man, you know, roses at Costco are super cheap, guys. This guy, when he wakes up the next morning, what did I say when I was that drunk? What did I ask her to do? (laughs) He should have been buying a lot of roses. None of us are perfect. We make mistakes. He could go back and eat a little crow and say, honey, I was really stupid. Like, you could slap me across the face stupid. Like, I deserve it. But instead of backing up and like there's that opportunity to fix your wrong. We as men, we as all of us, when we're wrong, we need to humble ourselves and learn to apology. And an apology doesn't look like, I'm sorry that I did that because you did this to me and made me do this. That is not an apology. I am sorry. I was wrong. Period. Period. But what we do is, I'm really sorry that I did that. But if you hadn't said what you said, and then you said, and you like really pushed me to do that, like that no longer is an apology. That's now a blame. I'm. But so what does this guy do? He gets all of these men, these trusted advisors, these legal counsels. Clearly, they're not happily married. The guy who speaks Memucan, there's extra biblical sources, meaning history books, that seem to support that they document that he wasn't a very happily married man. I think there's enough evidence of what he says, but many suspect that his advice to the king ultimately was a way for him to sort of give a command to his wife with the king's signet ring on it. Anybody that's happily married, their advisors, the person says, hey, my wife didn't obey me because I was like super like falling down drunk. I can barely remember it. And I wanted to pray her naked in front of all my buddies with like the ball cap of my name on it. And she didn't obey them. And I'm really ticked off about it. What should I do? I think that a happily married man that's been married for a long time would say, dude, what were you thinking? You like need to take her on a trip to the Bahamas to like, you need to do whatever she wants for like, I don't know how long this is going to be. You, did, you really did that. Like if you surround yourself, so who are you surrounding yourselves by? Where are you getting your advice? Is it from the soap operas, from movies? That stuff is the worst married advice. And so he comes to this guy, this Mamukem guy. Listen to his answer to the king. Queen Vashti is wrong, not only the king, but also all the princes and all the peoples who are in all the provinces and King Asherah's. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands, saying, King Asher's commanded Queen Vashti to be brought into his presence, but she did not come. 
This day, the ladies of Persia and Media have heard the queen's conduct will speak in the same way to the king's princes, and there will be plenty of contempt and anger. Every single lady in the whole country, the whole world, has heard what your wife has done. We're going to command our wife to do something, and she's going to say, the queen didn't honor the king, so I don't have to honor you, so go buzz off. We have a real problem on our hands, king, because it's not just affecting you, it's affecting me, and we need to do something to fix this problem. So we're going to legislate submission, which, anybody think that's a great idea? That is not a great idea. It's not going to work. I don't know what they're thinking. If it pleases the king, verse 19, let a royal edict be issued by him and let it be written on the laws of the Persian media so that, he, so that it cannot be repealed, that Vashti may no longer come into the presence of King Asherus and let the king give her royal position to another who is more worthy than she. When the king's, when the king's edict, which she, he will make, is heard throughout all of his kingdom, great as it is, then all the women will honor their husbands, great and small. Sound like a good plan? No. But the king's like, yeah, this sounds great to me. It pleased the king. And, and the princes and the king did as Memucan proposed. So he sent letters to the king's provinces, to each province according to its script, and to every people according to their language, that every man should be the master in his own house and the one who speaks in the language of his own people. We got a plan, boys. We're going to follow through. We're just going to tell all the ladies that they have to submit, and they're just going to do it. Like, whatever the guy says, that's what's said. And listen, look what happened to Vashti. She's no longer a queen. She's no longer... And that could happen to you. So it goes out. And I don't want to cover a lot of ground here, but as you go into question, it's chapter 2, after these things, when the anger of King Asherus had subsided, this isn't like the next day. If you were to go all the way to chapter, or verse 16 in chapter 2 as like this whole like parade of women is, is, is developing, you see that it happens in the seventh year of the reign. So depending on the month, this could be a four or five year window. Next week, we'll go into some of the more of the details of what happened. But he does this. He's sitting on top of the world. He's dominating the land. There's this other world power that's developing, Greece. There's a lot of military things that happens. He gets some bad advice. He basically has an embarrassing move, and he gets sort of like he has to go back. It ultimately unravels to where basically Persia is done in. And so he gets his tail, like he gets spanked. He's got his tail between his legs. He comes back after these things. And, and look what it says. After these things, when the anger of King Asherus had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Do you know what this is? This is years later, remorse for his actions. He was a foolish man. He went out. He had some problems in the military. And suddenly he remembers, man, it was really good to have a wife. It was really good to have a wife. See, he's going to have this whole like beauty festival thing that lasts for like a year. He could have any woman he wanted, but he wants a wife. And I think that there's a warning for us who are married that you can do stupid, foolish things and unless you humble yourself and make mid-course corrections, marriage is all about mid-course corrections. 
It's about humbling yourself, righting past wrongs, forgiving things, guarding this great thing. And for those of us who aren't married, who desire to be married, we need to recognize that our actions have consequences. And, and God wants us to be humble, to, to confess. Like, he could have righted what he did long before he basically chopped her off and kicked her away. And so what I see as we wrap up here, I have a number of things that I think I see through all of Esther. Is the first thing, and all of these have God's included, which is really dangerous because Esther doesn't include God. But, but some of the things that I see is that God speaks powerfully in silence. You might be in a season in your life where you feel like you're crying out to God, that you're seeking him, that you're doing whatever, and you read the Bible, and it's just like he's silent. The whole book of Esther takes 10 years. So a lot of time is going by. And so when I look back on my life and when I was like, I felt like I was desiring God and craving him, but he just didn't seem to be there. When I look back, I think that those are some of the most powerful times when God, like sort of his silence forced me to really to consider and to ponder. The whole location of where God's moving, this is a total pagan setting. And yet God's moving right in the midst of it. That is sovereignty. That means that God ultimately, sovereignty, you spell it, there's a word reign in there. Like he is reigning and ruling. That throughout the pages, this King Asher seems like he's so big and powerful, yet he's nothing in the hand of God. And I guarantee you that God is moving in our midst. But whenever I talk about, oh, God's moving, we think, oh, I think God's moving this. I made this decision. That means that, like, tomorrow it's going to be resolved. Or maybe, well, if it didn't happen, that maybe by the end of the week, by the end of the week, God's moving. God can be moving, and it can be years and years and years and years, decades, centuries. I mean, you might die. I think about children who come to faith after grandma and grandpa died that had been praying for them for 40 years. Don't think because God's moving slow that he's not moving. And ultimately what I see in this story of Esther is God is totally and completely faithful. You might not see him, you might not hear his voice, but I guarantee you he is faithful. And Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you, Lord, that our, our hope is secure in you. Lord, I thank you ultimately that this book of Esther, while there's a lot of stories, there's a lot of lessons, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see ultimately the big picture, Lord, your plan of redemption. The, the people of Israel, the Jews, are a miracle. There's been no greater hated people group in the history of the whole world. They've been decimated militarily through all sorts of things, and yet, Lord, they still exist. That you preserved your people, that the Messiah would come, and that ultimately we would have hope. And so, Lord, I pray for each person here that you would, wherever we are, Lord, whatever we're struggling with, that you would give us hope. Maybe they haven't come to Christ yet. Lord, I pray that you would help them to understand the gospel, that Christ came, he died, he rose, Lord, so that we might have life, for those of us who follow you, Lord, might be discouraged by our life situations. Lord, we pray that you would give us hope to know that you are working and moving, even if we don't see it. 
or feel it or sense it. We thank you, Lord, that it's not our emotions, but it's your faithfulness that we rely on. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.